Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 163. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Here to talk about the Tower of Terror. And no, we are not talking about the attraction at the MGM Studios. We are talking about the 1997 film shown on the wonderful world of Disney. This movie is not on Disney+, Plus, in spite of the fact that people have been begging for it. I'm not sure why it's not on Disney Plus yet. I assume it's going to get there shortly. Um, I mean, it has such a vocal fan base. Admittedly, I had only seen this one time when it was released. When it aired? Yeah, but I'm curious to see if you have more of a history with it than I do. I was obsessed with this one. I remember watching it when it was on Wonderful World and... I was so disappointed that it wasn't easily accessible because we didn't tape it. So it wasn't, I would have watched it all the time, but it was not something that I had. And I do remember watching it one or two more times. Either the library had it, which would be kind of a weird place to find it. Or I think we had a video store by us where you could get it. But I definitely saw this multiple times as a kid. And I remember every time I watched it, it just sort of like stayed with me. Let me ask you now. This was not a decom, but it was made for TV. Sitting to watch it this week, were you nervous that perhaps it wasn't going to hold up now the way it did when you were a kid? Yeah, I I definitely think it made more of an impression on me as a kid, especially because, you know, at that age and not having the advanced CGI that we do now, everything, you know, looked so amazing at that time so I was afraid the ghosts weren't going to hold up as well uh I was afraid it wasn't going to be as scary as I remembered it and I was really afraid that it was going to feel like it was stuck in the 90s all right well we are going to discuss if the film still holds up to your standards as you remember it and I want to talk about where it ranks in terms of films that are based on Walt Disney World attractions that amongst other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and shop for all of your straw charm needs, especially the brand new Woogie Boogie. It is Halloween night 1939 at the Hollywood Tower Hotel. Carolyn Croson, Gilbert London, Sally Shine... Emmeline Partridge and Dewey Todd are in an elevator on their way to a Halloween party at the Tip Top Club when the hotel is struck by lightning and they disappear. Sixty years later, disgraced journalist Buzzy Crocker is writing for supermarket tabloids with the help of his niece, Anna. One day, he is he is approached by Abigail Gregory, uh, Gregory, an elderly woman who claims to have witnessed the Hollywood Tower event of 1939 and says, that Sally's nanny, Emmeline, 
used witchcraft to curse Sally and inadvertently cursed the rest who are now ghosts living in the hotel. Buzzy tells his ex-girlfriend Jill, who is also the editor of his former paper, the Los Angeles Banner, about his new story, but she doesn't believe him and asks him to never return because this has been going on for quite some time. He comes in with some newfangled story and she brushes him off. Buzzy continues to investigate the event with the help of Anna and Q, Dewey's nep- uh, grandson, almost said nephew, and caretaker of the abandoned hotel. He finds a spell book and learns from Abigail that the curse can be reversed, but they need belongings from each of the five ghosts to help make this happen. In an attempt to sell the story to the tabloids, Buzzy recruits Anna and an actress named Claire Poulet to stage photos of the quote-unquote fake ghosts. But it turns out that the ghosts are real as they all appear and Claire exposes herself as Carolyn Croson. When Anna attempts to out Emmeline as the cause of the curse, she proclaims her innocence, which the other ghosts also confirm. Jill, meanwhile, learns that Abigail is a patient at an asylum and is the jealous older sister of Sally, and that she, in fact, caused the curse when no one remembered that her birthday was on Halloween night. Buzzy realizes that if they get the five belongings, repair the elevator and send the ghosts up to the party that the curse can be reversed. But when Jill tells him that she's going to run his story and that AP is going to pick it up and fix his career, he seemingly loses interest in helping the ghosts, which infuriates Anna, who tells Q that they will reverse the curse without him. When Buzzy and Jill do arrive to help at the hotel, Carolyn, Gilbert, Dewey, Emmeline, and Anna enter the elevator. Sally had stepped on but had gotten off when they realized that it was a trap set by Abigail. The elevator goes up and gets stuck on the 11th floor, just like in 1939. Abigail, who is now at the hotel, states that Sally's disappearance made her even more famous and that it has driven her mad her entire life. Sally explains to Abigail, because now they are together, that her birthday was not forgotten, as the party at the Tip Top Club was her surprise party. Abigail claims that she can't stop the curse, so they take a maintenance elevator to save the ghosts. After saving Anna, the hotel is struck by lightning and the elevator cars begin to fall. Sally forgives Abigail and finally gives her the friendship bracelet that she had bought for her birthday. That is, in fact, what ends the curse. So the ghosts get back on the elevator, they attend the party at the Tip Top Club, and their stay in limbo is over as one by one they all disappear, including Abigail. Q, now the rightful heir to the hotel, has reopened it and is now flourishing, which was something he had been waiting for his entire life. Okay, let's address the elephant in the room. This, for, I I sort of understand what they did here. It's the wonderful world of Disney. It's not the Twilight Zone. However, the ride is, in theory, based on the Twilight Zone. It is the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. They've completely gone away from the entire Twilight Zone motif here. 
Is it still called that technically? Because yes. here's the thing. I've been on it twice during my senior trip in high school, but I've grown to be a very big baby since then. And I, I have never even been on this thing with you. It, I remember when it was released as the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, but I thought they changed it to the Hollywood Tower of Terror. No, it's still the Twilight Zone. You still That you definitely st- gets downplayed. You still see Rod Sterling in the pre-show. It's still an episode of the Twilight Zone. Did they miss the mark by not including the Twilight Zone in this? Now, perhaps they couldn't because they don't own the rights to the Twilight Zone per se. Right. Disney hasn't bought it yet. <laughs> I think CBS still has their hands on it. Um, right, because they did the reboot. Yeah, which was excellent, yes. by the way. Um, but did they miss the mark with getting away from Twilight Zone? L- living in the world where they could have done it, did they miss? I feel like before, you know, I like the story, but there's just something special about being on that ride, knowing you're in an episode of the Twilight Zone, that if there's anything lacking here, I I feel like that's where it's a bit disconnected. So in other words, you would have rather seen them lean into Twilight Zone as opposed to leaning into the ghost story. Yeah, because... I mean, we're going to flesh all of this out as we get into the plot here. But her sister putting witchcraft, putting a curse on them through witchcraft is not something that you'd see in the Twilight Zone. You know, the Twilight Zone, it always has been these oddball stories, these offbeat stories where them being struck by lightning and disappearing, like, you don't necessarily need an explanation more than this happened and it sent them into like an alternate universe or an alternate reality. Like that is the Twilight Zone. Right. So putting witchcraft in here, it it just doesn't feel like something you'd see in an episode of the Twilight Zone. So I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting too far into my review at this point, but for the sake of, of answering the question, I guess because they did leave the Twilight Zone title at the door, it would make sense that they would go this way. Um, But yeah, it just feels like, I wish they would have leaned more into the mystery than just giving us this, oh, it's witchcraft. Gotcha. No, I am glad you started with that because that was something that I've been curious to ask you because you didn't grow up on this quite the same way that I did. Even though I'd only seen it a couple of times. Like, I just remembered everything about it so vividly um, because I really liked it as a kid and spoiler alert, I still do. Um, So I was curious to get your take on that. I think likely because of copyright, they had to leave any twilight zone element out of it because before Disney had purchased Lucasfilm, they had star tours in the parks, but they weren't making Star Wars movies. So I think the same rules apply here. They purchased the rights for Tower of Terror to use in the park as an attraction, but they still probably couldn't do anything as far as film production with it. Um, I do agree with you. It doesn't feel completely Twilight Zone-ish. And, you know, just to support my theory, it shouldn't. But I feel like the ghost being stuck in a limbo of this happening every Halloween night uh, and they, they need to make it to the party to break out of it. That does feel 
Twilight Zone to me as opposed to more than your traditional ghost story. But to address the witch spell element, that's what took me out of it. I was this time around when I was a kid, I kind of took it for what it was for what it was worth. But um, I feel like it doesn't have a place here. It's either ghosts or a supernatural element, but supernatural caused by witchcraft. I kind of feel like this was a big reach, especially because Abigail is so young. How did she even acquire this book? It raises too many questions. How she got the book, how she knew how to do this. I like that they they do the time jump, but I feel like for the 1930s Abigail, she was just too young, you know, when there's no dark web. How did she get all this stuff? This is, if I'm being honest with you, this is the only issue I have with the movie. It, the, the fact that she's 10 or 11 years old, she's... Some, we'll give her 10. It's her birthday. Yeah, like, she somehow... Knows all of these spells. She acquired a spell book from where we don't know. Um, it's it's not like she has a background in the occult. So <laughs> like it's it sort of feels forced that this is where they went. It's like, look, I know 1997 people were watching Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And Charmed was a thing, so witchcraft, the craft, had come out a couple of years before. Practical so like, magic, like all so, very good points. So witches were a thing. Witchcraft was a thing in the mid to late 90s. This actually is only two years after Hocus Pocus, I believe. Hocus Pocus was 93. So you had a four-year Right, I'm thinking jump. it's 95. Okay, so it was pretty far after But Hocus even Pocus. still... I, I understand you're capitalizing on the whole witch thing, but it wasn't advertised as a film about witchcraft. You're not supposed to know that it's witchcraft unless you watch the movie. I mean, let's be honest, though. This whole film is a two-hour advertisement to get you to go to the parks and ride the thing. Yeah, but with all that said, though, it it feels like they forced witchcraft in there so that they didn't have to explain Supernatural. They shoehorned it in. And, and it's kind of like the easy way out. I would agree with that, because for older Abby, it makes sense. For 10-year-old Abby, it just doesn't. The jealousy factor with her younger sister, though, I thought that was brilliant. I think that's a brilliant setup. However, I almost buy a 10-year-old doing witchcraft more so than I would buy like a murderous 10-year-old that tampered with the elevator. Because really, just based on the issues that you and I are having right now, I feel like that's the only other option. And were they really going to go there? No, she's not going to cut a cable. Right, of course not. And I mean, I guess there's no other adult that you could have had put witchcraft on them. But this is why I'm saying I don't know that you necessarily needed witchcraft. I wish they would have leaned more into the sci-fi element. You could have done a Twilight Zone episode without calling it the Twilight Zone. Or maybe because this was a new hotel and Abigail tells Buzzy that her family was living in it. So even before they reveal that Sally Shine is her sister, because that doesn't happen until way far down the line, like almost the third act of the film that you find that out. Um, 
what they could have possibly done was because Abby is living there. Maybe she knows that the elevator's faulty and she's the one who put her sister on there in the first place. Like, go get up to the party. And now she's got to live with this guilt as opposed to finishing what she started. I feel like that would have been a lot more interesting. Yeah, um, it would have been. It also would have been interesting if they if they kind of played into the idea that they rushed to get this lavish hotel finish and they cut corners. But at the same time, they're not killed due because to, of the because, crash. Because of the crash, they just they disappear when lightning strikes. And that's where I teeter totter back and forth with the sci fi element because I feel like that is where you incorporate. The Twilight Zone, but to me, a much more powerful ghost story would be that they died in the crash. I mean, isn't that what you want to see? Isn't that what you expected to see going in? No, you expected to see what happens in the Twilight Zone. That's and that's kind of my point is if you're if you can't make the Twilight Zone, if you can't make the Twilight Zone in name alone, I understand. But if you're going to base a film off an attraction in which these we, we they're never killed not not in a crash lightning strikes and they disappear and there's mystery and there's fantasy behind it and there's a sci-fi element i don't think you needed to show them being killed i think you needed to show the tower gets struck by lightning them disappear and we try to figure out why which in theory is what happens here but the minute you put the witchcraft in, it takes the super, it takes the sci-fi element out. So I guess the question I'm really asking, and where where all of this is going, is the biggest elephant in the room. Is it something that disconnects it from the attraction? Do you feel like you're watching a proper adaptation of? We we don't even call it Twilight Zone. Let's just call it Tower of Terror because that's what people have been calling it since the ride opened in, I think, 1994. Does it feel like an accurate adaptation of what you think the story really was in Tower of Terror? Because, I mean, I guess Abigail caused the lightning strike, but... Anything could... Mother Nature could have caused the lightning strike. Right. It was. It was kind of a more fun story in the ride queue when Mother Nature seemingly strikes and this very odd phenomenon happens. When they weren't targeted, I feel like it made it a more interesting story. Right. I mean, for me, I can kind of give it a pass because I don't have that same connection to the ride. Um, But I actually think, especially from the opening that they did do it a justice because they captured an era. Yes. You've got that big band music. And I absolutely love the way that that is juxtaposed against the drop. I love how it's cutting back and forth between the party and you know, what's going to happen to them. It's so well done. It is. I love the intro. I love the party scene. I think it's a lot of fun. And to your point, I think it's spot on. I love the attention to detail, not just with the hotel in its heyday, but even right down to having the Hollywood land sign, because before those four letters fell, yep. Hollywood was Hollywood land. I love that the attraction for all intents and purposes is the set that they, they didn't try to change the look of the building. 
Looking at you, Eddie Murphy's Haunted Mansion. And similarly, I love that you go right into the attraction video. Yes. It's Essentially, it is the same exact video you see in the ride queue, which I think, again, to my point, kind of like leads you to believe that maybe the witchcraft thing, maybe it's a mistake. I don't want to say too much more because I don't want to spoil my review, but upon the second viewing, I felt like if you were really leaning into this sci-fi phenomenon that is the attraction, that you do sort of water it down with witchcraft. It's too much of an explanation. I think that's my problem with it. And I feel like it sort of sets the movie up for failure in that it totally gives Abigail away. Because by the time you meet her again in Buzzy's house, which she broke into apparently. Well, no, she didn't break into it. The neighbor let her in. But she's just sitting there chilling. You just kind of know something is very much off with her. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things, I think, happen when you watch this movie the second time around. You pick up on a lot of things the second time around. They plant a lot when, if you've never seen the movie before, a lot of it just goes over your head. Mm -hmm. And you sort of forget about it. I talked about how I think the witchcraft doesn't necessarily work and how I think it leaves something to be desired. But other than that, everything that they do in this movie, I think is a fantastic success. I don't want people to think I'm going to sit here and pan it. Quite honestly, for me, I'm going to sit here and praise this movie. Um, I love that they plant things and I love that they put a lot at you to distract you from the plants, but not in a way where the pacing is janky, especially yes. for a made-for-TV film. What was impressive, too, was that normally when you watch a movie all the way through like this, you can totally tell where they did the commercial edits. The scenes are seamless one into the other. Other than the other than like the awkward fade to black while like two characters do the, what? And we look at each other and it fades to black. Otherwise, yeah, it is seamless. There's a couple of on-the-nose cliffhangs, but you it's not screaming all the time. There was a commercial here. No, for sure. Um, I also love the tabloid setup. I love that oh, you have so this good. disgraced journalist that is now setting up these fake stories to run in the tabloids because, I mean, as he says... The truth doesn't count. Nobody cares about it. Which is funny that as true as it was in 1997, it's just as true today. I love that they did that with Buzzy's occupation. I think that that was just such a brilliant move. It's totally plausible that he'd be getting his niece to go along with him on these escapades when he's trying to set up a story. I just wish he would have leaned a little bit harder into being a cynic. And not believing, I mean, he knows what he's writing isn't true, but the supernatural or sci-fi doesn't seem to phase him. I wish that he was like a staunch non-believer and Anna had to get him to go along with this a little bit more. He's on board for whatever the story is, but he cares so much about the story. Like a supernatural phenomena doesn't even phase him. So yeah. I kind of wish that he was completely against it, but... As far as being 
a disgraced journalist, the fall from grace, I think that that's such a great layer for the character. Yeah, and they flesh him out very well, very early, and he's very likable. I like that they don't waste too much time on Jill. I don't like that they avoid wasting time on why he's a disgraced journalist. We get the we get the conversation with him and Claire later of someone had a video of the mayor taking bribe from the mob and I ran it and it wasn't true. You don't need to flesh that out. We don't need a flashback of it. We don't need to see him falling from grace. Just enough going on within the dialogue. And I think they do the same thing with Anna. I, I like that she's in that alien suit with that doctor. I like her interactions with Buzzy and with her mom, who is Buzzy's sister. They're not, they weren't married. It wasn't like that's his kid. That is his niece, which I sort of like too. I think that would have been very tropey to be like broken home because he was a disgraced journalist. She left him and now he's trying to win back the affections of his kid. I think this was the stronger way to go. And they didn't, have to waste a lot of time or dialogue fleshing out Anna either. Correct. I think she's as likable as Buzzy is basically from the jump. I agree because, again, they didn't go with angsty teenager that didn't really want to go along with this, and he's got to convince her to partake in all of it. Yeah, and I really like their relationship. It's fun. They're buds. Yeah, Yeah, it's really, really great. Abigail gets introduced, right? You mentioned it before. The neighbor lets her into Buzzy's home because the neighbor thinks that it's his mother. Really, though? Like, don't you know your neighbor's parents? I I don't know. I wouldn't know my neighbor's parents if they walked up to me. I do. Mind your business. (laughs) No, I guess I guess that was kind of a 90s L.A. thing was because everybody was so transient. Yeah. You I know, it's so. not like you're born and raised there. Um, But anyway, you get introduced to Abigail. Her story seems legit. Like, if you are not going to do anything related to sci-fi or Twilight Zone... If you have to remove yourself or if you make the creative choice to remove yourself completely from the sci-fi element, I think the setup is sort of fun. Because I think that for a kid who's watching this, you know, I, I, I don't remember what I felt watching this when I was 11 years old for the first time. I clearly probably did not like it as much as I do now, otherwise I would have watched it more growing up or at least have found a way to watch it more growing up but I guess if you're a six or seven year old kid it's easier to understand witchcraft and a spell and a curse than it is the twilight zone so I I think the setup is fun if that's what you're if that's what you're going to do it's just not what I would have done based on that attraction but it's not to say that it it's not to say that it's bad. I just don't know that it works if you're a fan of the, of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. What I think they did do successfully is that Buzzy is asking Abigail all of the right questions. Because I had mentioned before that something about her just kind of felt off. I don't think that, you know, upon your first viewing, you're going to start accusing her of witchcraft. But 
you don't know if you can trust her 100%. So I love that Buzzy is asking everything that we're thinking and feeling, but she has an answer for everything. It's almost like it's too well planned. It's too well thought out. And that's what makes you not trust her. But she does give plausible explanations. Well, why can't you go back? Oh, I could never. It's too emotional. And because she's an older woman, that's why you wouldn't suspect her of being the villain here. Yeah, and it's like this is the one person that for 60 years, you you know, nobody ever had her as an eyewitness for all the people that were there. Right. She just comes out of the woodwork. I like, though, that they do sort of play with whether or not you can or cannot trust her. Especially as the movie goes on and you see she's got in the asylum all of the clippings from the tower and she's got, I don't want to call them voodoo dolls for Sally, but she's just got like heads ripped off. It's like, it's so creepy and it's so good. I think you can call that a voodoo doll. Well, but unless that was an actual doll of Sally and she just, yeah, like ripped her sister's head off because Sally Shine is supposed to be this huge star. Obviously, they modeled her after Shirley Temple. Right. So, of course, there were going to be dolls. Um, I'm glad you brought up those newspapers, though, because that is the one thing that pulls me out of this movie every single time. They needed to weather those newspapers a little bit more. They are just pristine white. You need to age them. It's not that hard. Dip them in some coffee. Or tea. Yeah. That's that's how they would do it, right? Yeah. No, but those are like literally hot off the press. Yeah, but otherwise, I like, you know, I think that where I love that she becomes the tortured soul because her plan backfired and that her sister became a bigger legend and it haunted her the whole time. Like, I thought that that was an excellent twist. Yes. I really liked that a lot. And I love how Abigail is not the only one whose lineage is directly connected to the hotel. Yeah. I love Q's character. Yeah, and I want to talk about that because this, in the next scene now we meet Q. Exactly. Um, because yeah. Buzzy's getting ready to go and do his investigation to write a story. I mean, look, if you go on the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, you don't, and we should change that. If you go enough, if you're like really a fan of that attraction, you know what an amazing set it is just to walk through as a guest of Walt Disney World. That is one thing I do miss about going on, is that queue. But the set, I mean the whole set, is amazing. Because they did film exteriors at the attraction. Interiors were on a soundstage. But... I mean, both sets just look phenomenal. They absolutely do. For as few times as I have been on it, though, I was able to pick out what they shot in Hollywood Studios versus what was done on the soundstage. You can just tell by the angles that they were using. Like, there was one where they shoot up at the corner of the building, and I was like, oh, this is literally in the ride queue. Like, I knew exactly where it was. That is something I've been thinking about doing is waiting online with you, but I'm so afraid that you're not going to let me just walk through the exit once we get <laughs> on the ride and that you're just going to put me in the seat and I'm going to have to do it. <sighs> foiled. My plan is now foiled. <laughs> no. I want to see it, but not that badly. I would imagine this was probably the last movie that was filmed 
at MGM Studios. I mean, I know they've done TV in the parks, but in terms of an actual film, I don't think... Because I think by by the late 90s, they had kind of gotten started to get away from it being a working studio. Right, because you didn't have the production offices there anymore. So, I, I mean, I get it. You're doing a movie about the Tower of Terror. You have to have a couple of shots of the real thing in there. But it's much easier to do when you can literally walk across and be in a production office and just have every, you know, holding trailers for the actor, everything right there. Yeah. Um, but we get introduced to Q to, and to jump on what you said before, I like the fact that they have him involved in that his grandfather was Dewey and his great grandfather had started the hotel. It was just, sort of strange that they all disappeared that night. There's no bodies, so technically it's not a crime scene. No one... I mean, yes, they died there, but it's not like you found the bodies. So it's not a murder scene. It's sort of strange that they had to shutter the doors and he was only allowed to open again once they revealed what actually happened. That was, I thought that was a little weak. Right, because Q is scared enough where he doesn't want to go in, and I love that about the character. He's too scared to do anything, but yet he's a shyster trying to make money off of it. You would think that he would have the lobby open and do these ghost tours and be making money off of it. Um... But I guess that's why you did have to have that sort of a restraint because otherwise he would be running a total scheme, right? But I think I would have enjoyed it more if he was running a scam. If it was if it was a Ghost Tours version of the Jungle Cruise. You know, if he had oh, so good. actors and actresses and animatronics and props that he was using to scare people. The fact that he has never been in the building, but he's like... But it's mine to reopen eventually once we figured out what happened. But I never opened the doors. So one day I'll just wake up and it'll come to me. You know what I'm saying? Like there was something to be said for that. And they could have played with it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But that's one area where I wish they would have elaborated a little bit more. Like for where the pacing is really good in the movie and where a few pieces of dialogue did enough to drive the story forward. This just seemed like we needed more of an explanation. Why Why is it that you can reopen when they figured out what happened? I mean, I could understand why you wouldn't want to run it as a hotel anymore if you were afraid of something like this happening again. Um, but right, now that we are talking about it, it does seem a little bit out of character that he wouldn't be running a full-blown scam and taking advantage of these tours. And that also would have given Jill a little bit more of uh, a stronger framework to not believe Buzzy because if she knows that this guy's running this operation, she's really not going to like that Buzzy linked up with him. And she's certainly not going to run the story. Yeah, let's talk about when we get introduced to her because that happens shortly after we meet Q where Buzzy goes in because he's seen the ghosts now he and Anna were there they've seen the ghosts he goes to Jill 
Anna also is a badass for sitting there by herself. Yeah. Waiting to pose in these pictures. She's the only one in there and he's outside waiting for his hired actress. So now we go to Jill. He tells her he's seen it. It's real. Of course, she's not going to believe him because the story that he's telling her is just too ridiculous to believe. But what I don't like about their interaction is that she tells him, don't ever come back. And before he even has a second foot out the door, she immediately picks up her phone to run a background check on Abigail Gregory. Right. And that's where I'm saying her character should have been more doubtful. Yeah. Or I would have liked it more if she kicked him out and then tried to run the story sans him. Like if she was doing now a background check and figured all of this out and said, well, we're just going to run the story. Thanks for the lead, but we're going to keep you at bay. Right. What I really don't like about this is that it becomes very hard to root for Buzzy when he is literally harassing her. Not just at her job, but I will give it this. The dialogue is very strong because you know they have a history other than having a falling out because he didn't fact check his story. Yeah. I mean, I like Steve Gutenberg. We're of the generation where you like Steve Gutenberg. Oh, it takes two. Say no more. Police Academy. We're on a different wave. <laughs> um, and now I'm really going to go to a, do a totally opposite end of the spectrum. He is now doing like these Hallmark Christmas movies. Yeah. Um, And to your point of him harassing her. I don't think he's harassing her. I think that's that's just how Steve Gutenberg plays everything when he gets really excited because he does ah, like you see it in all of these films where he gets like it, it's almost I'm not when I say childish, I don't mean it offensively. I mean like he just has this childlike whimsy in his eyes when he gets really excited about things and he did it in the 80s. He did it in Cocoon. He did it in this. He does it in his Hallmark movies. I kind of just think that that's how he plays being excited. I'm not knocking Steve Gutenberg's performance. I am knocking the character because this is where I took major issue with the ad- absent-minded professor, that he was so focused on his discovery, the fact that he missed his wedding was totally secondary. And then he doesn't offer an apology to his fiance for missing it. He just tries to offer an explanation. And those are two different things. For sure. Let's talk about the ghosts being in limbo. They're half zapped, half trapped, because Abigail didn't mean to curse all of them. She was just trying to curse Sally, but the curse hit all five of the people that were in the elevator. So they're in this kind of weird limbo. Well, it was also because she didn't have an artifact from each one of them. Right. So, I mean, does that work as, as a means for why they're stuck here? As a means for why she couldn't, accomplish her goal the first time like in other words the spell getting messed up does that work yes um i think so but i wish they would have picked up from there a little bit more 
I think it would have been so much more fun to have a scavenger hunt for these items in the hotel and have that be your subplot that Anna and Buzzy really have to go in and find the glasses, the luggage. They yeah, do the that yeah. yeah, in a matter of five minutes. The handkerchief was already in the book. Abigail already had that with obviously a lock of her sister's hair. Okay, that's a given. Um, and I also like that that's what she has because at this point you really don't, you don't know that she's Sally Shine's sister yet. You think she could be some crazy Uber fan. So I like that they pulled that in a little bit. I wish they would have been a little bit more heavy with it. Yeah. You know, she's shysty is all you know. Exactly. Um, but she also had the handkerchief. So you need to have three mo- three more items. Right. Okay. Do we or Q has his grandfather's hat. Okay, fine. I'll give you that one. But you need something from the couple. I feel like they could have stretched that o- out over a couple of scenes and had them go into rooms and maybe creep us out like the shining a little bit to acquire those things instead of having Anna just hop behind the desk and find them in two seconds. And that would have been a much stronger subplot than this whole thing with Jill running her own investigation. Yeah. I think you needed, you needed it fleshed out that Abigail was institutionalized, that she was the sister of Sally but I kind of wish that instead of having Jill do this, that it would have just been like Buzzy hiring a private investigator to background check while he's doing his thing in the hotel. You could have condensed the scenes a little bit and you could have just had somebody report back to Buzzy that this is what was happening if they could have expanded on that scavenger hunt a little bit. Again, I don't think the pacing's bad. I don't mind that they show Jill doing all of this, but if you did it at the expense of finding a solution to these items in under five minutes, that's where you could have done a little bit less. And it would have gone it would have gone further. Anna could have even done it because the whole reason you know, her relationship with her uncle eventually falls apart is because he cares about his story and she cares about the ghost. So if she had been doing this research on her own because she cares, she could have gone to him and and exposed him for being wrong the whole time. For sure. And that also would have been a better way to flip him to do the right thing as opposed to it just sort of dawning on him when he's already cast her off to write his story yeah he's like to jump ahead for a minute yeah he he's thinking about how he can rehab his career and he's sitting there with jill typing it and he sort of just stops and goes i can't do this i need to help them let's go back and they go back and she follows him and then they go back to his house to realize the book is missing yeah. and then the hotel. That was a lot of time that was wasted that could have been put into other things like the scavenger hunt, like Anna doing her own research to help out. There was just a lot more. I guess maybe Jill got too much screen time for something that wasn't as strong of a plot. For sure. I like the reveal with the ghosts and with Anna. I like that we have this Claire. She's come in. Claire Poulet. I love the accent. I love that 
that old Hollywood feel and style to her. She's spectacular. I love that twist when we realize that she is Carolyn and not Claire and you see the other ghosts. I thought that this all came together very well. Especially because they did a great job of making her look different. Yes. Um, that was something that I remembered as a kid that she was that he was interacting with the ghost the whole time. Did you realize that no, right away? No, not right away. They do a really good job of it. Yeah, when when you haven't seen the movie before, the things that they plant and the things that they hide, they do very well. When you watch the movie a second time, you realize how good of a job they did planting those things. So it's not that it gets ruined. I think the movie actually does get better upon a second viewing, and this is one of those things that I think gets better upon a second viewing. I agree. I think something that is as good as it was... In both viewings. Because now we know that we can, you know, we want to help these ghosts. They tell us that every year we have to relive the party. There's a curse. We have to reverse it. Blah, blah, blah. We have to make it to the 12th floor. And we mentioned before how Buzzy seemingly loses interest in helping them because he only wants to help himself. The scene when Anna gets angry with Buzzy. And she takes, what was it, the necklace he gave her? Mm-hmm. She takes it off and hands it to him. This is such a good scene. It is such a powerful, powerful scene. And I that's Kirsten Dunst. She's, she's really good in this movie. But for sometimes as hokey as Gutenberg can get, I thought his emotions really carried over well in this scene. It was just a very good scene between the two of them. I agree. I mean... I think that comes from, you know, they're the two biggest name actors in this film. And there's a reason for that. They're both very talented. Uh, But it's just something, you know, we talked about how good their relationship is in the beginning. The entire time, the chemistry between them, the two of them, it's just totally believable. Yeah. And then Anna and Q are hell-bent on doing it without him. Q doesn't want to, but... Q's a mechanic, so they need him to fix the elevator. They realize he can fix the elevator. And I I like that they got him involved that way. Like, if you're not going to involve him other than I'm in the bloodline and I'm waiting for something to happen, I like that this is what they did to incorporate him, that he's physically going to have a hand in breaking this curse because he's the only one that can fix the elevator. I liked that they tugged at his emotional strings with it. And, you know, Anna really lays into, you have to do this to help your grandpa. He believed in you. Uh, I'm surprised they didn't try to appeal to the shyster in him and be like, well, if you pull this off, we're going to figure, we've, we've already figured it out. All you have to do is fix it and then you can open up your hotel. Yeah. But I think they needed to give him a purpose other than unlocking the door. And we also need a reason to root for Q other than him wanting to open the hotel and make all this money. For sure. Now, the ghosts are all disappointed to hear that Buzzy's not coming back. Buzzy has this moment of, we can't let this happen. And they rush back to the hotel. They realize it's a trap and Abigail is there. And they are locked in. Do you remember how you felt when you realized that Abigail has trapped them? And and do you remember how you felt when you found out that she was 
a patient at a ment- at a mental institution that had done this to her own sister. Um, I remember as a kid really feeling the knife twist when it was revealed that she had hurt her sister like this out of jealousy. And I think that that's still a really strong case is just acting out of rage where it loses me looking at it with an older set of eyes is how did she earn rights after all this time to leave the campus? How is no one with her? What is this, you know, well, if we called her 10 when this happened, it's 60 years later, she's 70. We're just letting a 70-year-old run around L.A. and we're not keeping an eye on her. And that has nothing to do, I'm, I'm not taking a knock at a mental health issue. It has to do with she's old and she could fall. And we're just going to let her run around like this well, at also, all hours of the night. She's also institutionalized for a reason. You're not just going to open the door and say, yeah, come back when you're done. But they did. I, that, yeah, I'm saying it, it, it doesn't make sense that they would have done that, yet they do it anyway. That is the only thing that sort of takes me out of it now that didn't bother me as a kid. Yeah, I think um, even as an adult, it's still the knife twist hurts knowing that she would do that to her sister. Um, I thought that the twist was just fine. I think what they do really well here is once they get back into the hotel, this is Jill and Buzzy, and they're on their way to warn everybody not to go into the elevator, that it's going to be another trap, and Anna ends up in there by herself. Well, not by herself, she ends up in and Sally is out. When it is revealed that the party at the Tip Top Club was not just a Halloween party, just a lavish Halloween party for the celebs that were there and the hoity-toids that live in the hotel, that it was in fact a surprise party for Abigail. I, I love that they continue to backfire on Abigail one after another after another. The reveal is rough, it's heart-wrenching, and it's very good. I mean, really, Abigail is Maleficent because you took extreme measures. I mean, granted, she didn't know that it was her party, but it really makes her seem out of control. But I like that. I do too. You had you had to make her mad. You ha- like not mad as in like throw something against the wall. I mean, you had to make her crazy, right? Because otherwise, she's just going to seem like the crazy old lady that escaped from the institution, or just a petulant child. You forgot yes. my birthday. You needed her to take it to the next level. So right. That's what I'm saying. Like with the witchcraft, if this is the direction you're going to go in. There was a real opportunity for it to be very weak, and it's not, because they twisted it this way. The only thing that I wish that they would have done was lean into the repercussions with her family even more. Because we know that Sally is being protected by Miss Partridge. We know that that's Miss Partridge's unfinished business is to get Sally up to this party and return her to her family. But the family survived. This elevator strike didn't wipe out the entire family. It was just her. So I feel like that would have twisted the knife even further if we saw that Abigail, 
we saw how her relationship was affected by with her parents because all we know is that she feels like Sally was the favorite and she got all the attention but her parents aren't awful people you know she, she's just a jealous sister she's jealous of her sister's celebrity we don't know that the parents necessarily favorited Sally or that they totally cast Abigail out what I really like to your point is that all five of them who are in that elevator, they have an explicit purpose yes. for being in that elevator. Sally needs to be at the party for her sister to give her the gift. Miss Partridge needs to get Sally to the party because that's her job. Dewey needs to operate the elevator and get everybody there because it's his job. Carolyn needs to be there because it's her first singing performance. And Gilbert needs to be there because he's going to propose to Carolyn. They all have something that needs to happen for them to get out of this limbo. It strengthens the story so much more. And honestly, those are my favorite kind of ghost stories. Not the jump scare ones. Not the oogie boogie stuff. But when... It is an emotional connection to a lost soul that has unfinished business, something that they didn't get to do while they were alive on Earth. I just I think that's what stuck with me so much when I was a kid, because it really makes you feel sorry, not for these ghosts, but for these people. Yes, like you you had to humanize them. They can't just be ghosts. right? Right. So I thought that that was really, really, really well done. I love that we get the drop. Yes. Okay, because now you've got Carolyn Gilbert, Dewey, Miss Partridge, and Anna Anna. in the regular elevator. But now you've got the service elevator, which is what you take when you are on the attraction. And there you have Sally, Abigail, Buzzy, and Jill, and Q. Yes. I love that they didn't leave Anna. Granted, they can't, but they made the decision to stick by with her. And, you know, you think she's going to die. Right. But I love that you get the The visual of the dual drop. Shot brilliantly. I love that they did it, you know, from the angle underneath. And you see these elevators hurtling towards the ground. Um, As much as you're rooting for everybody to win in a happy ending, you can't do this movie without that drop. No, it's what you expect to see. And I also like that it is cut against Sally and Abigail breaking this curse. Because that was Sally's unfinished business that she never got to give Abby the present. So now she finally did. And I love that not only is that what breaks the curse, but Sally doesn't hold a grudge. And that is in part what breaks that curse. Yes. Because they said you need the contrary to break the curse. And we didn't know what that was. Well, the contrary is that Sally is going to be forgiving and she's going to give the gift and she's going to wish her sister a happy birthday and confirm that no one ever truly forgot about her. Right. And I love that it wasn't just about getting her sister, the birthday present. We get Sally's POV that she loved Abby the most because it was just her sister and Abby never treated her any differently. She never treated her like a celebrity. 
And I like that they layered the character a little bit more because all we've seen her do up until this point, uh, anytime they flash back is let me pose, let me dance, let me this, let me that. Even the first time we see Sally as a ghost haunting Anna and Buzzy, she's dancing and singing. Right. Um, so I think that that was just a nice little layer that was added to sh- to humanize her even more that she's kind of exhausted with the song and dance and she just wanted to be Sally. I think it was very important that you not only had to humanize the ghost, but I think you also needed to not make her the spoiled child actress. Yes. Because it's not that she's ever dislikable, but you really had to make her endearing because... Of all of them, she's endearing because she's just a little kid that's stuck in this limbo. She hasn't been able to live a full life. Not that the others in their mid-30s, it's not a full life, but certainly it's fuller than perhaps the life of an eight or a nine-year-old. Right, but they could have easily gone that way and made her the brat who was just like, you took away my career. I never got to go on and win an Oscar or whatever it was going to be. I never got to star in this movie that I was supposed to, blah, blah, blah. No, her her biggest thing was I never got to give my sister her birthday present. And it does lock her into being a child because she's not even thinking about what was cut short. When the curse is broken and they all make their way to that party... It's it's such a heartwarming moment. Oh, for sure. Like, your heart soars with them. Especially once they're all reunited with people that they knew at the party, like Dewey with his father. And when they start disappearing and they're going to that great beyond and the limbo is over, for a... I keep wanting to call it a decom. For a made-for-TV film to carry that much power and that much emotion is astounding. They really did an excellent job with it because it's not just about each of the ghosts reuniting and completing their unfinished business, but Q gets to see his great-grandfather, who he never knew. I mean, he never knew his grandfather either. And I think that's what makes it so strong, too, is because they got to bond even though they never got to meet in life. Uh, And then you have a, a proposal So they give you all of these added emotions, not just the elevator doors open and there they are. And there's something in it for everyone because that's from the ghost perspective. Now Q, because now the movie is over, Q is able to reopen the hotel. He's a success. Jill has made amends with Buzzy and Buzzy's career is back. And Anne is just happy that Buzzy's happy. Are we happy that Buzzy and Jill have amended their relationship though? This is one of the other weak points of the film. I don't care enough about Jill to root for them together. Oh my God, exactly. I'm rooting more for Carolyn and Gilbert. Yeah, Gilbert, and he's and he's so dislikable. He is, but yet you're so happy they have their happy ending, but yet I like him more. He has done more for me than Jill has. Jill, other than running the background check and exposing the background for... Abigail doesn't really do much of anything. That's why I'm saying, like, I kind of wish that we would have completely tossed this character aside and you could have just gotten a private investigator or something that could have exposed this because 
that's that's the only purpose that she serves. It's not uh, I you don't really want to see Buzzy wind up with her again. Or maybe if it was his sister who had the newspaper that kicked him out. Yeah, that would And that would have created more conflict with Anna. For sure. That would have been a better twist, I think. I hate to say it, but Jill is like a stereotype of what the 90s boss babe was. Yes. It was a woman with a powerful job who wore a pantsuit. Yes. And that's really all you saw in the movie because they never really fleshed out the character. Not to mention, I hate to say it, but this actress plays her like a second-rate Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah, like something that was getting ripped off of like The Haunting, which yes. I, which came out around the same time. I actually think this came out maybe a year before. But to, with that being said, yeah, she feels like something. She feels like they have her playing something else that they saw in another movie. Yeah, or I hate to say it, but it was like Hollywood's way. It, it was patronizing to see women in these roles because you didn't do anything other than put them behind a desk in a big office and pretend that that was moving forward for women and be the loudest one in the room. Exactly. All right, let while it we're paints on it, the wrong picture. Let's talk about the cast and the characters starting with Steve. We're done with Jill. Starting <laughs> we've well, covered her. Yeah, I'm not going to talk about Jill anymore. Uh Nia Peoples played her. So we'll mention her because we do mention all of the cast, the actors and whatever, but yeah, we're done with Jill. Buzzy is played by Steve Gutenberg. I said it before. People of a certain age just love Steve Gutenberg. We're in that generation. And I like Buzzy. I, I think he's a well-fleshed-out character. I, I love what Gutenberg did with him. Um, th- th- the fact that they could flesh him out so quickly without sacrificing any character development, it's, it's a compliment to the screenwriting, the directing, and the acting. Yeah, I absolutely love the character. I love Steve Gutenberg even more. My only, only knock is that sometimes his enthusiasm bordered on annoying. Uh, I mentioned it before. It's just what he does. That bright-eyed, hi, guys! <laughs> you know? No, I totally get it, but I just feel like it sometimes did make it more difficult to want to see him succeed when he was being annoying. Kristen, or uh, Kirsten Dunst, excuse me, plays Anna. 90s royalty right here. I mean, yeah. She was in everything. And I mean, she was such a talented child actress. Interview with a Vampire was her first movie. I mean, come on. That's coming out swinging up against Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. She's in Little Women with some major heavy hitters, Winona Ryder and Susan Sarandon. Uh Probably what we all know her for in this age group is Jumanji, and we all love Jumanji. But then, I mean, she's in this, and you forget she goes on to be our first Mary Jane when they adapted Spider-Man to film. Yeah. In the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, which we're not going to talk about anymore. But no, you could talk about the first one. The other two you can throw away. It was a big deal, is what I'm saying. I yeah. think people forget because she's sort of taken the indie route. Like once she did the, uh, what was it, Marie Antoinette with Sofia Coppola, mm-hmm. she started doing more of these indie films and her career has kind of taken a different turn. But I get it, you know, do more of these artsy roles because you were such a successful child actress. You're probably over the blockbustery stuff. Right. 
But she was great. I mean, I loved her in literally everything she did as a kid. And this was no exception. And I think that she brought so much more of a gravity to Anna. And that's sort of what helped separate this from feeling like a made-for-TV movie or like a decom and elevated the film. Michael McShane plays Q. We've mentioned him on the show before because he was in Teen Beach, by far our favorite decom, one of my favorite films that we've reviewed on Monoreal Radio. And what I like about him here is that he's so different from so many other roles that we know him from. Because, you know, we called him Keen Bean in Teen Beach because we knew him from Richie Rich. And he kind of plays the same kind of character. This is such a left turn for him. And I absolutely love what he does here. Yeah, I've always liked the actor from Richie Rich. And I just absolutely love this character. Like I said, I love that he is tied to the origin story. And he's a descendant of the person who opened the hotel, you know? Uh, So I I think that's great. But I like that they gave him so many more layers than just being built into the family and the caretaker. Um, And I love the last time we see him in the film when they take the picture for his opening. He's got the tuxedo, but he's still wearing his flip-flops. I think that's so in character for him that he's not going to let this go to his head and affect him. And he's just happy to carry out his family's history. Amzie Strickland plays Abigail. I really like this actress, and I really like the character. Okay, this is one where I go back and forth because I think she played it well enough where you don't trust her. And as I've said, you have an unsettling feeling about Abigail from the jump. But I feel like the farther along you go into this movie, the crazier she gets. And, you know, they have her doing what's supposed to be a a maniacal laugh, but it kind of starts teetering on crazy. I mean, she is kind I mean, she's a sociopath, right? She's supposed to be. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Well, I guess that's it. I think she almost gets a little bit too cartoony at the end. And I wish they would have. I mean, I get it. It was Wonderful World of Disney. You can't. That's that's the only thing. I would love to live in a world where this was a horror and like they really, really went for it and, and scared you, but it had to be a little bit lighter, but I feel like she maybe went too far. Melora Hardin plays Carolyn slash Claire. Claire Poulet. I love the character. I love what Melora Hardin brought to the character. The attitude the old Hollywood glamour. Yes. She's absolute perfect casting here. It's so funny because she looks so much like Diane Kruger, especially when she's in that white dress with her hair pinned up. Uh, Yeah, she's so impressive because she can pull off old Hollywood. She's got that class, just the way that she carries herself. And then it's juxtaposed with this horrible, horrible accent that she throws on. Uh, But it works for the character, though. You know, you can tell she's like this out-of-towner with big dreams that came to Hollywood. And that's what makes you feel for her so much, because they all got cut short. Um, But funny story, I haven't really seen her in anything since then. And she's on this season's Dancing with the Stars. So if you want to watch, she's still in it. Alistair Duncan plays Gilbert London. Again, 
he works. That that classic Hollywood, old school, classically trained British actor kind of feel to him. I don't know that he's an actor per se. I don't think they actually ever talk about what he does for a living. He's just fancy British in a tuxedo. But you don't need much more than that, right? Like he, you you know what he is by listening to him speak, watching how he carries himself. I thought he was a fun addition to this class. I didn't need him fleshed out more. We just know what he is, and he's perfect for what he is. I think he gets fleshed out plenty in the dialogue because when they do the big reveal, when they're ready to accuse Miss Partridge of being the witch and and trying to kill Sally, uh, the champagne pops in the dining room and he pours himself a glass and he's just kind of going on and on. Uh, you know, when they realize they can't really scare Anna and Buzzy anymore. Yeah. I think that's, that is all the development you need from him in that moment of, you know, we tried to scare you. We're over this. I've just accepted my fate. Uh, I I love him though. I love the pencil thin mustache. He kind of, I think they were maybe going to emulate like Clark Gable with that kind of smarmy, I'm better than you attitude. But, uh, I just love everything about him. And then they soften him at the end by having him propose. John Franklin is Dewey Todd. I really like Dewey. He's just such an endearing character because not that any of them deserved what happened to them, but he's not attending this party. You know what I'm saying? Like, even though Abigail accidentally cursed the five of them because she was going after her sister, you could almost make a case for... She's going after everybody at that party because she's going to take it out on all of them for for forgetting about her. Dewey's just doing his job. He's just so... But he's endearing, he's fun, and I like the lightheartedness that he brings to the cast. I love him. I I think I would even go so far as to say that he's my favorite character. Um, and they do such a great job of layering him, too, because his father owns this hotel, and yet he's a bellhop. So there's this added layer of trying to prove his worth to his father and that that is his unfinished business, that he's got to make it up to the top and prove that he could do the job. Um, It just makes him so endearing. And it reminds me of um, when they did the I Love Lucy episodes in California, they had a similar character that I, I don't know that Dewey was modeled after, but he just reminds me of... Uh, Lucy and Ricky's attendant and that gets roped into her harebrained scheme in one of the episodes. And that's kind of what this feels like, except it's much more unfair what he gets roped into. Lindsay Ridgeway plays Sally. You will know her as one of three actresses who played Morgan Matthews on Boy Meets World, but she was by far my favorite. That's how I know her. And I loved her in Boy Meets World. I loved her in this. She's cute, right? I mean, that's adorable. She's that's the point. Um, I think her scenes at the end of the film when she's with Abigail, those are the scenes that I think really sell her as an actress and as a character. Yes. Wendy Worthington plays Emmeline Partridge. I love how good-natured she is. I love how maternal she is towards Sally. I, I hate to call her a secondary character, but as soon as we know that she is innocent of this uh, supposed witchcraft, 
that's kind of where she falls in the hierarchy of all of these characters. I would agree, but I love her reveal because she looks so menacing and it works well because you've had all of the ghosts try to scare everyone out of the hotel, which is now that I'm saying that out loud is kind of interesting because wouldn't you think they'd want to break the curse? Why are you scaring any everyone away that can potentially help you? But I love how she says, I love Sally like she's my own. And you can see that Sally loves her right back. Yeah. Uh, final thoughts on the Tower of Terror. For me, it's very simple. I loved it then and I loved it now. Some things don't age well, but what surprises me about watching now is that those things are not elements that make me feel like, oh my God, this is a 90s movie. It doesn't feel dated due to the time. It feels a little dated in... Movies have come a long way since then, and it, it I think it's more the made-for-TV feel that makes it feel dated than anything else. But otherwise, um, you know, like I said, I, I love a ghost story that's emotional, and it's about unfinished business as opposed to being about the jump scares, which you do get a few, but nothing, nothing terribly bad. Uh, I love the cast. I love how they got the 1930s... Uh, just perfect. I I think they got that set and they got the attraction set. I just, I love it. And to me, this is a fantastic representation of an attraction being adapted to a film. And I can only wish that they had done this in 2003 with Haunted Mansion. I think the sets, the music and the costumes are great. I think the cast is great. As I stated earlier, I think you are lacking something by taking Supernatural out and inserting Witchcraft in, I wish they would have leaned more into Supernatural sci-fi and more into mystery. That's not the turn that they took. But with the turn that they took, I think the story is fun. I think that people of all ages can watch this movie and enjoy it. And yeah, I, I think this is an awesome movie. Just in general, I think it's an awesome movie. But in terms of a film adaptation of an attraction, I think it is as close to knocking it out of the park as you can get without knocking it out of the park, and it's because they didn't lean into Twilight Zone enough. You didn't have to call it Twilight Zone, but you could have had Twilight Zone elements, and they don't, and that's what, to me, that's why, that's, that's why the ball's caught on the warning track, but it is that close. It's that close. I would definitely agree. Not going to say it's perfect, but I think it's it's the best adaptation that we've had. Well, as far as Haunted Mansion and Jungle Cruise go, I think Pirates is in an entirely different realm that's not fair to compare to this, and we've already called Pirates perfect. Now, this begs the question, does it need a remake? I don't think that we need a remake of this film specifically, but... Like I said, I would love to see it in a different genre. I'd love to see if they lean into horror. Or what I would really, really love is if they set it in the 1930s as a whodunit in the hotel. I think in terms of the hierarchy of attractions that were adapted into film, Pirates of the Caribbean is number one. It's in its own class. 
I'm not sure that I like this better than Tomorrowland, but I do like it more than both Jungle Cruise and Haunted Mansion. But to me, you rank them Pirates, Tomorrowland, Tower of Terror, Jungle Cruise, and then you 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 completely leave the room, you leave the building, <laughs> and then you go down the block to that building that's got that board on the door and a few busted windows and the broken down car on cinder blocks in the driveway, and that's where you find Haunted Mansion. <laughs> It's not even close. And it's it, and honestly, I thought Jungle Cruise was a lot of fun. I'm saying these are four really good movies and then Haunted Mansion. And it pains me to say that. I'll, okay, I'll do you one better. Because we're, we're going to talk about it, so I'm, I am sort of spoiling it. I think Muppet Haunted Mansion is... Not as good as this, but better than Jungle Cruise. I think it's fair that we put that in there. We're going to talk about it soon, but I think it's fair if we're putting it in in the category, and technically it is, I would even stick that in there. So you got five good movies and then one really bad film. No, and we're also taking into account accuracy to the attraction and story overall with what yeah. they did with yeah. said attraction. Um no, I would definitely agree with you. I sometimes don't count Tomorrowland, though, because that's a whole land, not an attraction specifically. But, I mean, you're not going to do a Buzz Lightyear movie. We have one. You're not going to do... Uh, well, they are doing a Buzz Lightyear <laughs> movie. We're getting in the origin oh, story Oh, that's right. Now. That's right. That's right. But I'm saying that was an IP already. That came from a film. So. Right. The only thing that they could really adapt in Tomorrowland is Carousel of Progress, and I wouldn't hate that at all. Um, but I almost don't think it's fair because Tomorrowland is a whole land and not just an attraction. So I sometimes don't count that one, but otherwise I would agree with your ranking. Now that the ScarJo debacle is over and it seems like Tower is back on track... Ha <laughs> ha! Ha. Um... I think this could stand for a remake, but to your point, not a remake of this film. Yes. Just do a Tower of Terror movie, and if you're going to do it, I don't need a whodunit in the 1930s. I want it to be sci-fi. I want to feel like I am watching the Tower, uh, watching the Twilight Zone. If you can't call it Twilight Zone, and I suspect they can't, that's fine, but make it feel like you're in the Twilight Zone. I would actually love to see, and I'm I'm not saying it should be a Disney Plus like six parter series, but I would actually like to see if they did little column A, little column B. Like if they did do the Who Done It in the '30s, that could be your first film. Then you have the second one with the sci-fi element, you know, and sort of build it out from there. If they were to do a trilogy, because it does take place in a certain era. Don't do it through flashback. Like, actually give us that era. Instead of doing it as a prequel, like, tell the whole story in three parts, you know? Yeah, that I don't would say be that often. Like, oh, yes, please give us sequels. But you could do a lot here because there's just so much material. And because of the nature of it being a hotel, there are so many rich characters that you could 
sprinkle through here and you could track them in all of these different stories we want to know what you have to say about the tower of terror you can let us know on twitter instagram and facebook at monoreal radio or you can email us monoreal radio at gmail.com news of the week is coming up but first a quick break hey guys my name is mike i listen to jackie and sean's podcast every week on my commute into work So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake, because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. My services are cheaper and hopefully more fun than Genie Plus. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zalezzi, that's Z as in zebra, O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. If, if you weren't excited about Disney uh, about Genie Plus, you're not going to be excited about the news this week, which is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Design. If you are looking for branding, graphic design, media kits, perhaps you're hosting an event, you need uh, table numbers or save the dates, Kelly has you covered. Plus, listeners of Monoreal Radio get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she has to offer at karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Disneyland. Let's talk Disneyland for a moment. Impeccable timing. You know, it's not like we're planning a trip out there next year for D23 or anything like that. Well, it's going to cost us a little bit more money. And that's now. We still have a ways to go. We're still like 11 months out. All tickets at Disneyland saw a 6 to 8% increase. We're not happy, Bob. The I'm just going to keep saying it. <laughs> I, I don't care anymore. You're not the only one. The lowest price single day ticket is the same as it was uh, at $104. But Disneyland has all of these different tiered systems where depending on what day of the week you go, if it's a holiday or whatever, like all of the prices kind of fluctuate. So the top single day ticket went from $154 to $164. And a single day park hopper went from $209 to $224. If you have a multi-day ticket, those went from, for a two-day with Park Hopper, went to 315 from 290. And they and they jacked up the parking, too. The daily parking... Well, because, of course. Yeah, I mean, the daily parking went up five bucks, went from 25 to 30. But the valet at the hotel went from 35 to 50. Well, that's why I would definitely recommend... You know, I'm not just saying this because I do the vacation planning, but we experienced it ourselves. We stayed at a good neighbor hotel, uh, the the Anaheim Hotel. It was great. It was fantastic. And it's directly across from the Guardians of the Galaxy Tower. So now you get a view of the Avengers campus if you stay there and it couldn't be any closer. I'm just giving up our best kept secret right now (laughs) because we loved that view. But um, we were we paid for parking at the hotel but it couldn't be any closer to walk. And honestly, that was something that we were dreading when we did it because we were like, how are we going to do parks all day and then walk back to a hotel? It really wasn't that bad. It was no worse than having to walk to a bus. 
No, and then stand on a bus. I think we clocked from shutting our hotel room door to getting to the ticket scan at Disneyland on our first day. I think we clocked eight minutes. So it's really not the end of the world if you stay at a good neighbor. And I think their parking was significantly cheaper. I think it was only like $15 a day. Yeah, it really wasn't that bad. So that, in my opinion, is definitely the way to go. But it's just, you know, it's it's maddening to hear this because they sold out of the magical key. Right. So I think that's it. Because you've maxed out of those and you're not making money off of those anymore. Now you got to dip in somewhere else to make it back. This shouldn't be everyone else's problem. Well, there's a reason why everybody is so upset with Bob Chapik right now. To the I'm aware. That, do you know a group of former Imagineers have started a change.org petition to have him removed as the CEO? I didn't know, but where can I sign? I signed Let's on link your it. behalf. Let- <laughs> I saw, I'm not even going to lie. I signed it on your behalf. All right, thanks. No, it's it's got almost 7,000 signatures already. All right, let's put it on Facebook. We may have, well, maybe. I, I don't want to be a part of the hostile takeover because some of the people at the Disney company have been very good to us. Bob Chapik hasn't, so I really have no loyalty to him. This isn't a hostile takeover, but I'm ready to riot. <laughs> Storm the gates of the Magic Kingdom. We seek the head of Bob Chapik. <laughs> That's a hostile takeover. Let's not encourage that. Oh, believe, go, on, go on to Twitter. Believe me, they're hostile enough. But at any rate, we want to know from you if you are planning a trip to Disneyland or if you perhaps are a local that doesn't have a season pass and maybe you went only a couple of times a year. Does this affect your plans moving forward? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm still laughing at myself. Oh, uh, let, us, let, let us know too. Who wants to rage? I'm ready. On uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, Subscribe and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. We just told you where to find us on social media. And for links to everything, it's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.